Welcome to Theology.fm. I'm your host, Jeremy Myers, and this is the first official show of Theology.fm. And what we're going to be looking at today is the question about what does God think about you? In theological discussions, it is usually we ask questions about what humans think about God, but in my opinion, a more basic and fundamental question might be what God thinks about us. Today's guest speaker on Theology.fm is Brian Zahn. He presents what I believe to be the most fundamental truth in theology. So, if you want your theology to be based on the right ideas and get started in the right direction, the truth that Pastor Brian Zahn presents in today's show is absolutely essential for you to grasp. In this show, Pastor Zahn teaches about God's attitude towards you. In case you're unfamiliar with Pastor Zahn, he is the founder and lead pastor of Word of Life Church. It's a non-denominational Christian congregation in St. Joseph, Missouri. Brian and his wife founded the church in 1981. And Brian is the author of several books, including A Farewell to Mars, which I have read, and it is fantastic, as well as Radical Forgiveness. You can learn more about Brian at his website, brianzond.com. He also has a podcast of his own on iTunes, and he can you can connect with him on Facebook and Twitter. There will be links for all of those sites in the show notes. I also want you to know that today's episode is sponsored by Logos Bible Software. It's a software, Bible study, theology software I use in all of my research and all of my writing. It literally is like having a seminary library at your fingertips. Not just that, but it is instantly searchable. In just a few seconds, you can find more information than you can handle on any theological topic, any verse or passage in Scripture. You can do keyword research. You can do studies on Greek and Hebrew background concepts, historical cultural background, diagramming sentences. I mean, you name it. It even has a feature in there where you can write your own notes for future reference, uh, prepare your Bible studies, your sermon manuscripts. Look, it it is a huge, wonderful piece of software. I highly recommend it. And if you uh, go to Logos.com, you can uh, get 15% off by using my coupon code, jmyers6. If you put that in, you'll get 15% off your entire purchase, both the first time and every time you make a purchase. There'll be links for that in the show notes as well. The reason that I chose this message by Brian Zahn to sort of lead things off for us with Theology.fm is that the truth he presents has been the most influential truth in the growth and development of my own theology over the last, I don't know, five to seven years or so. And maybe what he presents is something you have always known, But for me, it was something I learned relatively recently, and I'm not sure why it took me so long to hear this truth. I mean, I went to Bible college and seminary. I was a pastor for a number of years. But I just don't recall ever hearing or even preaching uh, the truth that, that Brian Zond presents, which is the truth that God looks like Jesus. But once I came to see that truth, and I don't remember who introduced first introduced me to it. It was it was uh, I, I I I was introduced to it long before I heard the sermon from Brian Zahn. But once I came to see that truth, nothing has been the same since. In my opinion, 
this truth is the most radical, the most important, the most fundamental, the most paradigm-shifting truth you can learn in your theological development. God looks like Jesus. To put it another way, you could say, Jesus reveals God to us. Or you could say, if you want to know what God is like, look at, just look at Jesus. Jesus said it this way, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In the prologue to his gospel, the Apostle John said that no man has seen God, but Jesus has revealed him. In other words, what John is saying there is that up till that time, nobody really knew what God was like, but then Jesus came on the scene and revealed him to us. Paul knew this idea as well, and uh, that's why he said in Colossians 1.15 that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Author of Hebrews, he also says this truth. He says in Hebrews 1.3 that Jesus is the exact representation of God. I think you could probably get the idea. This idea, this concept, this truth is found all over the place in the New Testament. It's mentioned so often in Scripture because this truth changes everything. The idea that God looks like Jesus changes how we read Scripture, how we view God, how we think about sin, how we view ourselves, how you treat other people and view other people. It's because of this that I say... This idea that God looks like Jesus is the most influential, fundamental truth in theology. It is the cornerstone of all good theology. Now, if you if you read my my blog or listen to my own podcast, uh, read some of my books, you will see me talk about this idea a lot. Uh, But I'm not the only one. Neither is Brian Zahn. I would say most, if not all, of the people I have chosen to contribute to Theology.fm have this idea that God looks like Jesus at the center of their theology. So you're going to hear them, not just me, not just Brian Zahn, but Greg Boyd and a lot of the others that that contribute to Wayne Jacobson, a lot of the others that contribute to this, to theology.fm. You'll hear them talk about this truth as well. Brian Zahn, I've chosen him just because it's a sermon of his that I heard recently, and I thought he did an excellent job explaining it. Um, God is like Jesus, and Jesus reveals God to us. Jesus not only reveals how God acts, but also how God thinks about you and about me. So with that in mind, let's tune in and let Brian Zond explain the rest. My sermon tonight is entitled, God's Attitude Toward You. God's Attitude Toward You. It's amazing how many people would be nervous with a sermon with that title. You have nothing to fear. God's attitude toward you. My text is from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31, verse 20. I'm going to read it to you from Eugene Peterson's message translation. Oh, Ephraim is my dear, dear son, my child in whom I take pleasure. Every time I mention his name, my heart bursts with longing for him. Everything in me cries out for him, softly and tenderly 
I wait for him. What a beautiful bit of poetic prophecy as Jeremiah channels the heart of God. Again, it's the prophet composing his poetry inspired by the Holy Spirit, giving voice to the heart of God as God says, Oh, Ephraim is my dear, dear son, my child in whom I take pleasure. Every time I mention his name, my heart bursts with longing for him. Everything in me cries out for him. Softly and tenderly I wait for him. Do you know who God, through Jeremiah, is talking about? Says Ephraim. Oh, Ephraim is my dear, dear son. But who is this Ephraim? Ephraim is Israel. The ten northern tribes, after they have broken apart, there's been a divorce in the people of God. And the ten northern tribes that will be known as Israel break off from the two southern tribes, which will be known as Judah. And it's complicated as divorces always are. And so you think, well, Judah, Israel, aren't they the same thing? They're supposed to be. But there was a split. And one of the names, there are various names, one of the other names for the ten northern tribes that split in the 8th century B.C. is Ephraim. But this is Ephraim. Ephraim is Israel at its lowest spiritual ebb. Ephraim is idolatrous, adulterous, backslidden, covenant-breaking, sinful, far from Yahweh, Israel. Keep that in mind. The Ephraim being addressed by God through the prophet is backslidden, sinful, covenant-breaking, Baal-worshipping, Far from God, Israel. That's Ephraim. And God says, Oh, Ephraim is my dear, dear son, my child in whom I take pleasure. Every time I mention his name, my heart burns with longing for him. Everything in me cries out for him. Softly and tenderly, I wait for him. Centuries ahead, centuries ahead of the full revelation of God that will eventually come with Jesus Christ, Jeremiah in his poetry has revealed the heart of God toward sinners. And let's say it this way, let's make it personal tonight, toward you. This is the heart of God toward you, at your worst. Not at your best. I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about at your worst. Whether that was a long time ago, yesterday, right now, or you, you feel like it's going to come pretty soon. 
at your worst, your your most sinful, your most backslidden, your farthest state from God. This is God's attitude. This is God's spirit toward you. Oh, Ephraim. Oh, Brian. Oh, whoever, you know, whatever name you want to put in there. Anybody here feel like they're a real sinner? Yeah. Jim, I saw your hand. A lot of hands went up, but I saw yours. So, here's what God's here's God's attitude towards you. You said, "Yeah, I feel like I'm a real sinner. I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner." Oh, Jim, it's my dear, dear son, my child, in whom I take pleasure. Every time I mention his name, Jim, my heart bursts with longing for him. Everything in me cries for him, not against him, for him. Softly and tenderly, I wait for him. Many of you, and I know this, many of you have had a lifelong struggle with a concept, a view, an idea of God as angry, vindictive, and impossible to please. That's the God that you have inherited. It came to you. This, this picture of God was given to you. Whether you consciously knew it or you didn't know it, whether you know how you got it or you don't know how you got it. Many of you have had a lifelong struggle with an angry, vindictive, impossible to please God, little g. Along the way, you picked up a sinner's in the hands of an angry God picture of God. A sinner's in the hands of an angry God paradigm. You know that phrase. That's, it's the title of what is probably, almost certainly, the most famous and influential sermon in American history it was preached in 1741 by Jonathan Edwards. Not everything Jonathan Edwards did was this bad. He, he had a lot of good thinking, and he, but it's, it's not my fault. Maybe it's not his, I don't know. But for whatever reason, this became very formative in American religious thought about God. This sermon that he preached in 1741 that is still famous to this day. And in the sermon, and I'm, he wrote his sermons, and so we know exactly what he said. In the sermon, this is just a taste of it, but this is one of the more famous passages. Jonathan Edwards is trying to communicate, well, my sermon is entitled God's Attitude Toward You, and that could have been the title of his sermon. Though, Brother Edwards and I are going to have a disagreement about what God's attitude towards you actually is. In this sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, Jonathan Edwards says, The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath toward you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. 
He is of purer eyes than to bear you in his sight. You are 10,000 times as abominable in his eyes as the most hateful venomous serpent is in ours. Now, if you preach that just right, in the right setting, with the right emotion, in the right condition, you can get a, quote, revival. I mean, you can scare the hell out of people. And, and they'll, they'll respond in some way. Because they've been terrorized. You can get a religion out of that. You can, you can get a conversion out of that. You can get a response. You, you, can, you can be scared straight, you know, onto the straight and narrow. But at what cost? At the cost of the character of God being deeply maligned. I can't tell you how deeply I reject Jonathan Edwards' portrayal of God. Though what Edwards says in his sermon is representative of a common distortion of God's attitude, which is to say a common distortion of God's spirit. I could argue with it in a dozen ways or more. I know I could. But let me just say it this way. God is like Jesus. God in fact, has always been like Jesus because God doesn't change. There's never been a time when God wasn't as Jesus is. But we haven't always known that because the human journey toward understanding God is a process over millennia. But now we do because Christ has come and revealed God. And we know that God... It's like Jesus. Can you imagine from what you know of Jesus, especially as witnessed in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Can you imagine Jesus coming to a group of sinners and saying, God holds you over the pit of hell much as one would hold a loathsome insect. And God abhors you. And God, in, in, in the eyes of God, you are more vile and more despised than the most venomous snake is in our eyes. Now can you, maybe you can. I'm going to have to work overtime with you, I guess. But can you imagine Jesus addressing Mary Magdalene like that? or Zacchaeus, or whoever. So, every vision of God, every concept of God, every formulation in our mind that arises when we hear or utter the word God, every vision of God from whatever source, I don't care where you get it from, I don't care, I literally mean this, from whatever source you get your vision of God, it is subordinate to the revelation given to us in Christ. Jesus, I worship Jesus. I believe in Jesus. You know what I believe about him? I believe he's the word made flesh. 
He's the infinite made finite. He's the logos made flesh. He's the logic of God made flesh. I believe what the Apostle Paul said, that he is the exact icon of God. That everything else is hints and guesses. Some better than others. Some close to the truth. Some quite a distance removed from the truth. But Jesus is not the closest or better than... Jesus is the exact representation of the image of God. He is the Word made flesh. He is... We would say it in Trinitarian theology. He is the second person of the Trinity made flesh, made human so that we can understand what God is like. God is like Jesus. The Apostle John says in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. This is God's logic. This is God's self-reflection upon himself as God understands himself perfectly. God has... uh, God thinks of himself... By the way, I should, I should point out that this understanding that I have of the Trinity of God meditating upon himself, that's the Logos, and this Logos becomes flesh. I just realized I got that from Jonathan Edwards in his wonderful essay, um, essay on the uh, unpublished essay on the Trinity, which is obviously now published. <laughs> so, you know, it's a mixed bag with all of us, I guess. You could find some pretty bad Brian Zahn sermons. At least mine didn't become world famous. (laughs) So in the beginning was the word, the logos, the idea, the reason, the logic, God's understanding of of himself, distinct from himself but emanating from himself. And in the fullness of time, this logos, this word became flesh and we beheld his beauty. His beauty, his indescribable beauty. Beauty as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He lived among us. John then goes on and says, no one has seen God at any time. No one has seen God at any time. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is near the Father's heart. He has made him known. Which is to say this. No one has ever seen God until they see Jesus. That's what John is saying. You haven't even seen God until you've seen Jesus. You want to know what God is like? You haven't seen Jesus? Forget about it. Until you see how God is revealed in Jesus, it's it's as if you haven't ever got anything right. Jesus is the full revelation of God. Are you with me? Okay. So we ask ourselves, does the... uh, Picture the concept of God from whatever source. Does it look like Jesus? And if we ask ourselves, does Jonathan Edwards' depiction of a sadistic monster God look like Jesus? And we say, no, it doesn't. Then we are free to reject it. In fact, we must reject it. Yet people do struggle with the vision of an angry, vindictive God. And no doubt, one of the reasons, and the the reasons that people struggle with the concept of God being impossible to please, mean and vindictive, angry and all of that, one of the reasons is a, we can say it this way, at least a certain reading of the Old Testament. And I want to just say a few things about that before I move on. About 
deriving a picture of God from the Old Testament that might tend toward the angry and vindictive. First of all, all descriptions, depictions of God are subordinate to what is revealed in Jesus Christ. That's the first thing I want to say. That everything else is subordinate to what is revealed in Jesus. But even the Old Testament doesn't just present one view of God. There are several views of God. There's not, there isn't a, there, you, you, can, you will have, you'll have Joshua's warrior God, but then you'll get Isaiah's turn swords into plowshares, spears into pruning hooks God. Because this is what the Old Testament is. This is important. The Old Testament is the Holy Spirit inspired story of Israel coming to know their God. But it's a process. It's a journey. They start and don't always understand what God is really like. That's the whole point, that we don't know what God is like until we get Jesus. So you start from the beginning, but you understand the story is a progressive revelation of what God is like, and you don't stop somewhere in the middle of Genesis or Leviticus or wherever. You don't stop until you get to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And find Jesus. But there are hints, in fact, in the Old Testament of how we can better understand what we'll call the wrath of God. And remember, my text tonight comes from the Old Testament. Keep that in mind. But there are hints in the Old Testament of how we can better understand this terminology when we talk about the wrath of God. One example would be Psalm 7, verses 11 through 16. And I'm going to put them up on the screen for you. This is in the Book of Common Prayer translation of the Psalms. So what I pray out of. And there are, there's these three verses there in verses 11, 12, and 13. Now li- listen to these three verses. You can follow along on the screen. Psalm 7, 11, 12, 13. God is a righteous judge. God sits in judgment every day. If they will not repent, God will wet or sharpen his sword. He will bend his bow and make it ready. He has prepared his weapons of death. He makes his arrows shafts of fire. Okay, that's, that's verses 11, 12, and 13 in Psalm 7. And these verses make it sound like God directly visits retribution upon sinners. If you just have that, you're reading along, you say, all right, God's, God's righteous, he judges every day. If people don't repent, he'll sharpen his sword, he'll bend his bow, make it ready, prepare his weapons of death. So God's going to use weapons of death to bring about judgment. But then it flows right into another set of three verses. Continuing on, verses 14, 15, and 16. Look at those who are in labor with wickedness who conceive evil and give birth to a lie. They dig a pit and make it deep, and they fall into the hole they have made. Their malice turns back upon their own head. Their violence falls on their own scalp. In other words, there is a one level of looking at God's wrath and judgment is that God simply... Gets angry and smashes people. 
That's one level of looking at it. But if you'll go deeper, you'll see what happens is God simply has established a moral universe. And that if you continue to go away from the way that God says is the way, you are digging a pit that eventually you'll fall into yourself. I gave the illustration, you know, a year ago or so. When I preached the sermon, Grandpa's not mad. And in that, I give this illustration. I have three grandchildren. I think I had two then. They keep piling up. I got Jude, Mercy, and Finn now. And in the basement, where I write my books and where I like to be, especially in the winter, we have a wood-burning stove. It might be my favorite earthly possession. I just love that wood-burning stove. I just, I like it. And of course, you know, it's, it, it, the ambiance it creates and the smell and the winter, the warmth. It's just, it's, it's something to gather around. You know, you gather around it. Of course, a small child that doesn't understand could be hurt by it. So you have to keep an eye on them. And as they get old enough, you say, no, don't, don't touch that. Don't touch that. That's grandpa's command. Grandpa from Mount Sinai gives the law, thou shalt not touch the stove. But let's imagine that they break the law. They touch the stove and they're burned. Is that grandpa getting mad and saying, see, I'm offended at you, you little loathsome insect. And you, you didn't respect me and I'm petty enough to cause you pain because you disobeyed me. You infringed upon my sovereignty. You didn't give me the glory that is due to grandpa. And so because you dared to disobey me, you've been hurt. Now, a childish mind might think like that, except none of it's true. None of it's true. What's true is that that which creates the goodness of the stove is also that which is the potential to cause pain. And so it has to be approached in a proper way. Come close, but not too close. And so, one way of making it, saying it as simply as I can, we are more punished by our sins than for our sins. We are more punished by our sins than for our sins. If we have a childish, immature view of God, we might see the suffering and pain that results as being punished for our sins when in fact we are simply being punished by our sins. And that the whole point of God's law was to keep you from the pain that would occur, that you would pull onto your own self if you go that direction. And that's why Grandpa said, thou shalt not touch the stove. That's why God says, thou shalt not whatever. And then, and then pain comes into your life as you break the law of God. It's not God getting mad and being petulant. It's simply the inevitable result of the way that God has formed the universe. All right, I wanted to say that, but I want to move on. What I want to say to you tonight, and really talk about with the time that remains, is I want to tell you about God's attitude, which is God's spirit toward you. And it is one of unwavering love. Unwavering, the, the unwavering love of a father Although for some of you that's problematic, so I, I'm completely comfortable with saying God's love towards you is like the unwavering love of a mother. Hopefully you're mature enough to understand that that's fine. I mean, you can say that. 
that God is father and he's mother and he's all of that. And so if, if, if the concept of unwavering, unconditional, self-sacrificing love, if for you, maybe, maybe you had a troubled relationship with your father, but your mother was that source of that kind of understanding, then it's perfectly fine for me to say to you, the love of the father is like the love of a loving mother. That's God's attitude, God's disposition towards you, and you have nothing to fear from God. You have nothing to fear from God. Yes, I said that. You have nothing to fear from God. Someone says, yeah, but what about the fear of God, which the Scripture commends? You fear God in the way that I, as a child, feared my dad. I had the fear of respect, of reverence, possibly you could say a, a fear that, that even was rooted in a deep admiration and I didn't want to disappoint. But I never thought for a moment that my dad hated me or would ever harm me. So, as a child, I, ha- I held these things together without, I didn't have to be a theologian. I didn't have to try to, I just, There was never a difficulty in my mind with saying, yes, I fear my father. Yes, I love my father. I have this kind of fear, but I know he doesn't hate me and I know he would never harm me. If that's what we mean by the fear of God, that's the beginning of wisdom. But if what we mean by the fear of God is that we are afraid that God hates us and will harm us, that's the beginning of neurosis. And of a lifelong struggle that that I hope you don't have to go through. God knows you. God knows you. Everything about your life is... Of course, I don't need to say that God knows you better than anyone. God knows you far better than you know yourself. In fact, we hardly know ourselves. God knows you. He knows you. He, He not only knows what you've done. That's the easy part. You know, the NSA knows what you've done. (laughs) But God knows who you are. He knows the whys and what what not even drones can see. God knows you. Inside and out. And he loves you. And that love has never wavered. Never one moment. In your worst moment... In the episode in your life that you would be the most ashamed of and you would hope that no one would ever know. In that moment, God's God's love did not flicker. It did not waver. God did not begin to... God was not tempted to turn away from you. Never. Never. God knows you have a complicated story. Unlike most people, God does not put all the blame on you you're a sinner you know it but God doesn't put all the blame on you with some people I would be tempted to say I'm not sure I can say this I'm being edgy tonight but I think it's in a good way I think with some people I I could even say God doesn't even put most of the blame on them 
we have, we have as a culture, as a, really as just as human beings, but even as Christians and as, a, as a religious people, we have not given near enough credit, that's the right word, maybe blame is a better word, I'm not sure what word to say, on systemic sin. And the reason we don't is complicated too, but it, it, it's because to, if you start critiquing systemic sin, you, you're critiquing the very foundations of human society and that's, that creates problems. But you're a sinner. Some, some of you are worse than others. <laughs> but you're complicated. And some of you are worse sinners than others because you just had so much to deal with. I mean, it's really a miracle that you're not worse sinner than you are. And God knows all of that. And no matter what the reason, God just loves you fearlessly, unwavering. His love towards you is never changed because of what you do, ever. God knows you, and God loves you. Unlike most people, he doesn't place all the blame on you. And God, as your father, is responsible for you, which I think is one of the most radical things I've ever said. You, you probably won't catch it at first if you'll write it down, memorize it. I didn't put it on the screen. God, as your father, is responsible for you. I think that's a pretty, that's a pretty daring theological statement, but I'm going to say it. God, as your father, is responsible for you. Now, the risk that God has taken is real. And the risk is that God decided to create something like him that isn't him. See, the whole, the whole project with human beings is, hmm, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let's make something like us in our Trinitarian dialogue. So God makes a creature, a being, human, that is like him but not him. Like him but not him. To be like God but not God means that you are endowed with a radical freedom. Because God is free. You understand that God's free? God is not, there, there's nothing over God. God isn't bound by anything. He's free. And so, for you to be like God, you have to have at least a strong measure of that freedom. Because if God completely controls you, you are not other than God. You're just an extension of God. And so God creates a being like himself, but he releases it. Let's it go. Where it can get in trouble and make wrong decisions and disasters and painful episodes and all that. But I don't think that God is ever released from his responsibility for you. He's responsible for you. Because you came forth from God. Ultimately, God said, let there be. 
and forms man from the dust of the earth and, and Adam and Eve and we're the sons and daughters. But ultimately, there is a responsibility. Now, now, how you work out the human freedom and God's responsibility and how it works out, I think, I think the answer is that eventually, time and love are on God's side. But God as your father is responsible for you and God is at work to form you in a healthy way. He's not giving up on you. He's not giving up on you. He's not giving up on you. Look at a couple of verses in the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 6, verses 35 and 36. Luke 6, 35 and 36. This is what Jesus says. Jesus says, but love your, na- love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons or daughters of the Most High. For He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. The reason we're called to love our enemies, how many of you know we're called to love our enemies? The reason Jesus calls us to love our enemies is not because it's a particular ethic that Jesus has come up with. Jesus is not saying, I want you to love your enemies because I got to sitting around thinking about it in the the wilderness and I decided this would be just a lovely ethic for human beings to have. Now that may be true, that it may be a lovely ethic to have, but that's not why Jesus says to do it. Jesus says that we should love our enemies not because it's a particular ethic we should try to live up to. Rather, Jesus says we should love our enemies because it's what our Father is like. Because God is like that and we are his sons and daughters and we are expected to bear a family resemblance. The older I get, the more I hear people say, you look like your dad. I'm still trying to come to terms with that, you know. I mean, you know. Because I always think of my dad as an old man, but oh well. (laughs) Well, the whole telos goal of this project is for you and I to begin to look like our dad. And so Jesus says you need to love your enemies. Why? Not because it's a particular ethic. Not because it'll, you know, make everything work out right. Not because this is my political strategy, Jesus says. He says you should love your enemies because you know that's what dad's like. And you're supposed to be like your dad. And so Jesus tells us that our father is kind to the ungrateful and evil. Did you see that? That's right there in the Bible. That's in red. Jesus said that. But love your enemies and do good and lend nothing, expecting nothing in return. For he is kind. They're very into verse 35. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. What is God's attitude towards the ungrateful? He's what? What's God's attitude toward the evil? He's what? Who said that? Do you have to believe it? Yes, you do. And you should regard it as good news. Think about it. God does not view you as his enemy, but even if he did, he'd still love you. Why? Because God is kind. Even to the ungrateful and the evil. Luke 11. Luke chapter 11. Verse 11. Luke 11, 11. 
Jesus says, What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Daddy, I'm hungry. Can I have some fish? Yeah, okay, sit down. Here you go, and he throws a live snake on his plate. And Jesus says, you know, you're not going to do that. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? Breakfast is served. A little scorpion, no. If you then who are evil, can I tell you that the main reason the main reason? I mean, it gets, it gets worked into our traditions and texts and things. But the main reason that we tend to think God is angry and vindictive is because, can you guess what the real reason is? Because we're angry and vindictive. And we end up, think about those people you see, you know, those Westboro Baptist people with their sign, God hates and they're very, they're angry. And they have a very strong vision of an angry, vindictive God. Are they seeing God? No. What are they doing? For whatever reasons, maybe for complex reasons. And by the way, God loves them. God loves them. For complex reasons, they are angry, vindictive people. And they've projected that image onto God. And like you, they can irritate the life out of me. You know, they've picketed here twice. It's like a badge of honor, I guess. But um, they can irritate me like they irritate you. But there's also in my, in my better moments, there's a deep pity for them. I think, oh, what bondage, what slavery to live with, I don't know how you do it. How do you live with that kind of vision of God? It, it's truly a neurosis that I think it, it, will, it takes the toll upon the human soul. What father among you, if he asks his son for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent, or if he asks for an egg, will... Give him a scorpion. If you who are evil, it's, it's we who are evil. It's we who are mad and mean and vindictive, not God. If, if, then, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? God is a good father. And Jesus, in saying that the Father will give us the Holy Spirit, he means something particular. Jesus means something very particular. When he says he'll give the Holy Spirit to you, he's, Jesus is meaning something that really isn't spelled out here. But later, the great apostle Paul does spell it out for us. So when Jesus says, look, you don't have to be all tense and worried and uptight. You don't have to be afraid of God. He's your father. And he doesn't give you scorpions and snakes. 
He knows what you need, and that's what he wants to give you because he loves you. And if you'll ask him, he'll give you the Holy Spirit. Now, what does he mean by that? Jesus means something very particular. And we're not told here, but later Paul reveals it to us when he writes Romans 8, 15 and 16 in the Kingdom New Testament, N.T. Wright's translation. You didn't receive the spirit of slavery to go back into a state of fear. Let me stop right there. Paul really is talking about moving out of an old concept of God. You didn't receive a spirit of slavery to go back to a state of fear. A lot of people begin with God with a state of fear. But don't stay there. But don't stay there. Don't stay there. You didn't receive. He's talking about when you received the Holy Spirit, you didn't receive the spirit of slavery to go back to a state of fear, but you received the spirit of sonship in whom we call out Abba. Abba. And then it translates it so you'll know what it means, Father. Abba is Aramaic. It's the term that Jesus used for God, for his Father, Abba. It's Aramaic. And it means exactly what you think it means. It's, it's the intimate term of a child for their father. It's dad. That's what it is. You didn't receive the spirit of slavery to go back into a state of fear, but you received the spirit of sonship in whom we call out. See, hear what Paul's saying. You receive the Holy Spirit, and what is, what is the effect of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit comes on you, and the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you say, Abba, to God. You say, Dad, to God. You receive the spirit of sonship, daughtership, in whom we call out Abba, Father. When that happens, it is the spirit itself giving supporting witness to what our own spirit is saying, that we are God's children. How do you... Well, let me, let me start thinking. You know the Holy Spirit... The holy attitude of God has come upon you when your response to God, your disposition toward God, you're thinking about God as Abba, Father, Dad. That's when you know it's the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says you can ask your Father for that. And he'll, he'll send that to you. He'll send that. He says, I'll, I'll reveal my attitude, my spirit, my attitude, my spirit, my attitude. Those words are almost always interchangeable. I'll reveal my holy attitude, my holy spirit. I'll give you my holy attitude. You can have my holy attitude, my holy spirit. I'll give you my holy attitude, my holy spirit. And you'll know you've received the holy attitude, not the unholy attitude. The unholy attitude, oh, he's a, you know, he's a, he's a hard taskmaster, that God up in heaven. That's the unholy. That's unholy. You know you received the holy attitude, the Holy Spirit, when Abba, Dad, Father, I trust you. Okay, I want you to stand up. And worship team, come up here and let's get ready to do that song. But some of you have suffered for a long time, maybe a lifetime, from a distorted vision of God. And you, and you have this, one of the things you have is you have this idea. You have, 
Jesus is cool. Jesus likes me. His dad, I'm not so sure about. Jesus, some of you have this idea, Jesus is saving me from God. How many of you have ever had, had something like that, that Jesus saves you from God, that God's about to, about to, and Jesus, no, no, no. It's like, it's like, it's like, a, it's like, an, it's like an alcoholic father comes home and is in a rage and, and is about to beat you, but your big brother says, no, dad. Well, I can't begin to tell you how screwed up that whole vision is of everything. Jesus is not saving us from God. He's showing us what God is like and has always been like. If anything, Jesus is saving God from the character assassination that has been heaped upon him. And Jesus is the one coming saying, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, all listen to me, I'm telling you, my father isn't like that. You've been lied to. That's the devil. The devil has blamed God. And the worst of human beings, human, human beings have projected their worst upon God. And then it's bounced back and people have believed that God's mean and vindictive. He's not. Jesus is saying, God is your Abba. He's the one to whom you can... You can in, in, Absolute trust, say, Dad. And that his only attitude towards you is one of unwavering love. If you run away from God, if you disobey God, there are consequences. But Grandpa's not mad. Grandpa didn't send the stove to burn you. You just ran away from God and, and in your radical freedom, which God had to give you to be in his image, you hurt yourself. You dug a pit and you fell in it. But God didn't dig the pit and throw you in it. God had warned you, go around digging pits because you want to you capture your enemy in your pit. You know, then one day you'll forget where all your pits are and you'll fall in one yourself. If you want to think at one level, okay, that's the judgment of God. You can think like that. But if you want to think at a better level, you can say, wait a minute. I'm not being punished for my sins. I'm being punished by my sin. I dug that pit. I'm falling in the pit that I dug myself. I should have listened to Dad. He told me not to go around digging pits. Okay. Some of you have suffered for so long with the distorted visions of an angry, vindictive God. You, you thought you had to be perfect to please God. And you couldn't be perfect. So you've thought that you've never pleased God. Didn't read your Bible enough and reading the Bible to please God is, I, don't, I can't tell you how lame that is. God would, I think God would say, you're reading the Bible to please me? Just like watch Seinfeld or something. I don't want you to read the Bible to please me. You don't have to do that. That's in that. I don't want you to do it for that. And you've thought that God is never pleased, but in your most sin, and then, and then, then you have, then you're like, you string three days in a row together where you feel pretty good about how you've been, and then you get proud. No, on your worst day, in your worst sin, when you, when you were at, whatever you identify as your worst point in your life, your most sinful, God's attitude is, oh, Ephraim, 
is my dear, dear son, my child in whom I take pleasure. Every time I mention his name, my heart bursts with longing for him. Everything in me cries out for him, not against him, for him. Softly and tenderly, I wait for him. So here's what I want you to do. Open yourself to God. And do what Jesus told you to do. And ask him. Ask your Abba, your Father. Ask him for the Holy Spirit. Ask him for the holy attitude. You've been crippled by unholy attitudes. Ask him for the holy attitude, the Holy Spirit. And then say, Father. Say, Father. Say, Father. Say, say, Abba. If you're comfortable with it, if it works for you, think of God and say, Dad. And the moment that you begin to suddenly relax, or slowly relax, And realize that God is not out to get you. That he's not out to punish you. That he's not disappointed in you. That he's not angry with you. That he's not dangling over you over the pit of hell as somebody would, all that spider business. Know that God is pleased with you. He's pleased with you because you're his. Because you bear his image no matter how marred. And when you can relax and say, well, I have nothing to prove. But Abba, I believe you love me. The moment you can do that, that's the Holy Spirit that's on you. So just just lift your hands and just do that now without me necessarily prompting you and coaching you. But just just say that word. Just, Just say it. You know, little children, little babies, they learn to say, Mama, Dada. I mean, is it, is it an expression of longing? Yes. Is it an expression of love? Yes. Is it an expression just of, of uh, recognition? It's all of that. And it need be no more complicated than that. Just Abba, Mama, Daddy. Jeremy Myers here again. Wasn't that good? Yeah. If you want to leave a comment about what Brian Zahn said, you can do that by going to theology.fm slash Brian Zond slash zero one, which is the episode number for this show. And you can leave your comment there and I will try to forward it to him or maybe he will get on here and and answer it himself. Uh, You can also at theology.fm recommend other podcasts, other pastors, uh, other episodes to contribute to theology.fm, maybe even your own if you have a podcast. There's a place on theology.fm to recommend other podcasts for uh, airing on theology.fm. And uh, would you also do something else for me? Would you go to iTunes and leave a rating and review for this show? I would really appreciate it. And that way more people can find out about this show and get some of this other basic fundamental and super critical truth about how to view God and especially what God thinks about you and about me. Thank you very much for listening. We will see you in the next episode of Theology.fm.